a good while ago, I imposed upon myself a moratorium, a moratorium not to mention again the strength of doctors in the congregation of Fullwood. Oh, I don't mean the physical strength, I mean the numerical strength of doctors in the congregation of Fullwood, because as a result of one of my uh, throwaway lines, I got the only rebuke I ever received from my successor, Hugh Palmer, a very gentle rebuke from the most courteous man you could ever come across. You see, at the Keswick Convention, I happened to throw away a line and said that if you're feeling ill, the best place to be is Christchurch Fullwood. There's a, a specialist on every pew. Whatever you've got, you'll be all right. One lady in the congregation took me seriously. And instead of going home from Fulbert to Cheshire where she lived, she came to Christchurch Fulbert and pestered Hugh Palmer to find a doctor for her very many ailments. And so I received that gentle rebuke, which I have taken, more or less. When I, we, I prepared a little series you are doing this evening, it was none of my choosing, Doctor, Doctor, uh, I knew as the series was coming that I was walking past the office and the voice came out from the computer, well, from the secretary sitting at the computer. The voice of the computer said, oh, Philip, you've got gangrene. I said, well, I didn't realise. <laughs> I was feeling quite well, thank you very much. Anyway, I gather what she meant. I got gangrene, which is my theme this evening from 2 Timothy chapter 2. I didn't choose it. It's chosen me, and I'm more than happy to speak on gangrene. Because I don't think the Apostle Paul was an expert in anatomy any more than I am, we shan't go through the awesomeness of what gangrene means, except insofar as he tells us. You see it there, one page, 1196, on verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. He knew that gangrene spread, and he knew that false teaching spread. You see, Paul is not all that bothered about physical health. It is true. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul will tell us this. Physical training is of some value. Please remember that. But then he goes on to say, to my great relief, uh, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Some of my contemporaries go to the gym. I shall keep well away from the gym. Uh, in, in days gone by, it, you may remember, was jogging. And when everybody around me was jogging, I asked a doctor in the congregation, back to the doctors again, does jogging do you any good, said the doctor to my great relief. No, Philip, not really. The only difference it makes is you look fitter when you die. Since I couldn't care less whether I look fitter when I die, I shall not jog. Now, of course, physical exercise is good, but, says the apostle to Timothy, it's godliness it should care about. And I want to share with you tonight some very personally challenging words, moving words, disturbing words about this passage. I just say, I didn't choose it, but I'm glad to preach from it because I believe this gangrene is around and the false teaching we have here, Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus, is still very much with us and we shall be deeply concerned about it. The Bible's full of this teaching about false teaching. You can find it scattered through the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You will find uh, very much in the letter of Peter and the letter of Jude, who spend a lot of time uh, about the false teaching that's going around like gangrene and its spreading. Oh, and if you, of course, would like the words of Jesus mostly, yes, by all means, in Matthew 7, Jesus says one of the most stern words about false teaching. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. 
And that comes, please, in the same, same chapter that begins, Judge not, lest you be judged. Any suggestion that we should be so naive as never to make any decisions is non-biblical. Jesus, having said, judge not, then he says, watch out for false prophets. So we have to be aware of the gangrene. Now, the gangrene spreads in three ways. Uh, spiritually, biblically. It spreads personally. And that can be very harmful when we begin to imbibe it. It spreads in a local church all too easily. And it spreads in the wide church very much so. I was privileged with Paul and two of our church wardens to be in London just 20 weeks ago to the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. And it stirred me. 1,600 like-minded people there with a sense of hope. And one of the things we were there for was we wanted to make some stand. And if you think this stand doesn't matter, I just read the church press only last week, week before, the presiding lady in the Episcopal Church in America tells me that personal salvation is a heresy. Now, I want you to think how far that is removed from Scripture. Personal salvation is a heresy. The idea that I can be right with God, justified by faith, at peace with God, a heresy. Well, you understand, the gangrene has spread a long, long way in some parts of the Anglican Communion. And the challenge comes to us to be careful. Now, before we go any further, may I point out that there is a caveat. And I say it to myself, as I say it to you, the caveat is this. It is true that right through Scripture we are warned about false teaching. For example, uh, Paul speaking to the elders of this church in Ephesus where Timothy is now the bishop or the leader, in Acts chapter 20 reminded these uh, Ephesian elders that false teachers would come in, savage wolves will come in among, among you and will not spare the flock, so be on your guard. But, do you know what is the last word to Ephesus in Scripture? Well, Bible students do know, but in case you've forgotten... The last word to Ephesus in Scripture is not in Acts or Ephesians. It's in the book of the Revelation. And the book of the Revelation, Jesus says some remarkable things about the church at Ephesus. He says this. Oh, would that he could say it about us. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. Wonderful. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Why does a Christian care about gangrene? Why does he bother? Because he's lost love? I hope not. Because he loves deeply. I wouldn't consider my GP to be loving to me if he discovered that I got something terribly wrong with me. But he didn't tell me. He just told me nice things to make me feel good. Is that loving? Is that kind? But I do hope he would do it, and I'm sure he would, knowing my GP, in a very gracious bedside manner. And those of us who care much about truth, and we care about the gangrene spreading, let us be on our guard, let us be alert, let us not be ashamed to call a spade a spade, but let us all the time know why we do it. Not because we want to battle, but because we love the church, we love the faith. We love our precious Lord Jesus who died for us. So I've got three calls from these verses. And for those who 
uh, check their clocks, that my first point will take as long as the points two and three put together, just in case you were watching how the time was going. My first point is a call to clarity. Then we have a call to purity and a call to charity. A call to clarity, that's verses 14 to 19. The positives come first. What was the heresy which was getting through into Ephesus? Well, almost certainly, if you ever study church history, here's a little point to you. If you study church history and there's a heresy, it's almost bound to be Gnosticism. I used to like my Gnosticism, which starts with a G, like Gnu, and Gnosticism. And uh, it's a kind of, it's a sort of heresy which says, well, the basics of the faith are okay, but we know more. They're not enough. We've got something more. Always beware of the Jesus plus. The Bible's fine, but of course we're living in the 21st century. We need something new. Be careful. When I read the emerging church in America says that the first century church wrote the Bible, the 21st century church can rewrite the Bible, I say no, sir. And I will fight tooth and nail against it. Because, you see, we need to be very careful, isn't it, Jesus plus. Well, now here's, when, when, I, when I'm dealing with this kind of Gnosticism, what does Paul say to Timothy? Isn't it, isn't it rather boring? Keep reminding them of these things. Just keep on going over the basics. Keep on reminding them of the truths. And then, he says, warn them. You see, I don't think a preacher standing in this pulpit is just teaching the Word of God. Oh, he must be doing that. But he must do more. Preaching is not just teaching. It's teaching plus. Warn them before God. We need to be warned very carefully because there is quarrelling about words which is of no value and only ruins those who listen. The strong word ruins is actually the word catastrophe. It brings catastrophe. Now we know later on in verse 17, one of these men who was causing this trouble was called Hymenaeus. Now we know nothing much about Hymenaeus except that in 1 uh, Timothy, Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20 has been excommunicated. Hymenaeus and Alexander have been handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, which is, means they've been thrown out of the church. Why? Because they've rejected the faith and have shipwrecked the faith of others. We should care deeply. That is not going to happen. And the quarrelling about words here is the danger of introducing into the gospel that which is not gospel. Now, be careful. I meet people who say, well, isn't that what you do, you evangelicals? You quarrel about words. You worry about doctrine. There was an awful phrase that was banded around years in the early days, the charismatic movement, which did many good things. But the, the odd phrase that went around was this. Doctrine divides, love unites. Those are four dangerous words. Of course love unites. But so does true doctrine unite. Of course it matters that I believe in the centrality of the cross. I believe in the deity of Jesus. I believe in his second coming. I believe in final judgment. These are doctrinal issues on which our whole life is based. And so the challenge of these verses is warn them about quarreling about words. Not ask them not to dispute doctrine. We must stand firm on the truths of Scripture. And there in verse 15... We said, do our best. Here's the word to Timothy. But it's a word to anyone who in any way is asked to teach. 
I was thrilled to hear about the number of people you've signed up for the small groups. I think it's great that so many people have signed up for small groups. So it's not just a teaching from here, it's the teaching that goes on in small groups, in Sunday school, in youth groups, desperately important. That we are to be those who are workmen not ashamed. That I can stand before my Lord and say, I have been faithful to your word. And you see the next phrase, correctly handling the word of truth. The word actually says, driving a straight path through the word of truth. That is being absolutely accurate in the word of truth. And that's another word for the gospel. It's another word for scripture. There are the positives. That's what you've got to do in the light of this false teaching. Secondly, the negatives. If we want to stop the gangrene spreading, here it comes, verse 16, avoid godless chatter. Some of us of my vintage and older, and there aren't many of you around, but those of my vintage and older who do remember the Second World War, remember they said, remember, walls have ears. Do you remember that kind of thing? We mustn't sort of say things, we mustn't spread. Walls have ears. Now they've got CTs, uh, Vs, pictures as well. So be careful. And the godless chatter which can become more and more ungodly can happen in churches. Gossip, or I am godlessly bothering about trivia. And I sometimes think the church of Jesus Christ will begin to sink away because we are so bothered about trivia. The kind of music we sing, the kind of things clergy wear, is that really important? Are you prepared to go to the stake for that? Is this really worth battling for? And in the midst of the real issues of our day, godless chatter can make people... See what it does? What it does? Verse 16, it makes them more and more ungodly. Further and further away. Just please glance with me at how this happens in, several, in, in two more chapters. Chapter 3, verse 13. Evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse. More and more ungodly from bad to worse. Chapter 4, verse 4. They will turn, these false teachers, turn up their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's a gradual process from more ungodliness to more ungodliness. And so it goes. I have a good friend who's little older than I am. Some of you know him. Dick Lucas, who is a vicar, was a vicar in uh, London for many years, a great character. And Dick Lucas did a Bible reading at the uh, at Keswick in the days when I was chairman of the Keswick Convention and Dick Lucas uh, was doing Jude and in doing uh, a study on Jude he had a little word about how uh, uh, it was a story, of course, it's a story but it's an intriguing story, a poignant story about a man who wanted to get rid of his office block he worked in this office so long he hated every minute of it and he was about to retire and how on earth do I show how much I hate this building so he decided he'd get rid of it he'd get the thing to fall down the poignancy about this is not long after Dick preached that, somebody did blow up St. Helen's Bishopgate. Whether they heard his sermon, I have no idea. And if you want to know the story, Dick Lucas's life was saved because he read P.G. Woodhouse in bed. I'll tell you the story some other time if you'd like to know. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse did one good thing. But Dick Lucas' story was this. This man decided he would get rid of his office block. He had two alternatives. On the day before he retired, or 
put some Semtex in the building, run like mad and watch it blow up. No, he wouldn't do that. Uh, for a year before he retired, every day during his lunch break, he went to the basement and he took out a brick. One by one, day by day, until at last it all fell down. Sorry. Not possible, I suppose. But the logic was there. How will the church, be, how will it be destroyed? Where will the gangrene happen? Oh, well, you keep moving a brick. You don't suddenly deny the whole thing. Oh, it doesn't matter whether you believe in the virgin birth anymore. Not really. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in the second coming. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, taking God's wrath on us. Oh, no, there are plenty of other views. Take it out. Historic resurrection of Jesus, the Bible's view of sexuality, keep on pulling one out, and sooner or later, sooner rather than later, the thing just falls. And because I believe with all my heart, and we'll see it in a moment, the church is meant to be the agent of getting the gospel out, this is not a matter of getting away from evangelism. My priority is always evangelism. But if the church is going to be effective in evangelism, it's got to have integrity. A bishop of this diocese once said to me, Philip, are you only an Anglican because of the best boat to fish out of? And I said, I had to spend a few minutes to think the answer to that one. And I said, no, not quite. But I do think it is the best boat to fish out of. I did then, 20 years ago. I'm not so sure now. Until and unless we make sure that the church we belong to has an integrity so that the world can listen to us and know that we stand for what we believe and we're not ashamed of it. And that's the challenge. And what was the particular issue, verse 17, that was spreading like gangrene? Look at it, verse 18. They've wandered from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Now, Probably that means they denied the resurrection of the body. There's not going to be any final resurrection day. Almost certainly they denied the historic resurrection of Jesus. They preached a kind of faith which says, well, resurrection is a kind of spiritual thing that happens in people's lives, but don't be bogged down by history. Don't be dogmatic. And that sort of teaching is heresy. And that's the gangrene that will spread. I went to university to read history just a year or two, having been converted. And I knew, because my heart had been converted, but I hadn't thought through the implications since I was reading history at Oxford, I knew that I had to be sure in my mind that the faith I stood for was good history. That I wasn't a two-minded person, double-minded. Uh, I really had to believe it was true. So I battled with it. And if I can add my commendation to the Reason for God, the book that's been plugged by Paul and others. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, I commend it to you. I've just been reading it. Uh, I've stopped buying books because we have so many books in our place. My wife's always threatening to get rid of them all, so I better. I'm, I don't buy too many, but I bought this. I commend it to you. The great chapter there on the resurrection. It matters that the resurrection is historic. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then all of us here are wasting our time. We better do something better on a Sunday night than stand here. Of course it's true. And I worked that one out in my soul and it made all the difference. And do you see what we must not do here? They say the resurrection has already taken place. Verse 18b, and they destroy. 
the faith of some. You should never have to destroy anybody's faith. Never teach, I hope we don't, I'm sure we don't in this church, ever teach children and young people anything that they eventually have to disagree with. Do you know, I remember, I was, in the days when children were allowed to be children, we weren't experts in the computer at the age of five, like they are now. There's nothing worse having grandchildren who teach how to do a computer. It's a, it's an awesome thing for us olders. But I, as a child, I was a child. And of course I believed in Santa Claus. And I, I can still remember the age of about eight or nine. I really was a very, a very childish child. But then at eight or nine, I really did believe. And I remember, I can remember with my friends. Of course it's true, I said. My parents have told me and I believe them. He does exist. And I went back angry. And I went back to my mother and father and asked of them and they confessed to their shame that they led me into untruth. And so I can remember now, I went out again and I paced the streets and thought, this I did think as a child. If Father Christmas doesn't exist and they told me he did, is Jesus real? And oddly enough, that's why we never taught our kids to believe in Father Christmas. You can work that one out as you wish. But I, it's awesome when people feel it's good to destroy the faith. I don't want my children, my grandchildren, to have a, a faith that needs to be destroyed. And please be careful about gangrene that is destroying the faith of many. That's my first point. It's all right. We're well on. And my second point. A call to clarity. A call to... Sorry, I haven't quite finished my call. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting, getting carried away. There's one more subdivision of my first point. There you are. <laughs> Subdivision 3. We've had the negatives and the positives, now the certainties. There in verse 19 are the certainties. Two certainties. Just see what they are. The first one has been a great help to me. The Lord knows those who are his. I think any parish vicar worthy of his name will often have to resort to that comforting word. But I suggest to you it means something more. But one of the foundation stones, one of the certainties is the Lord knows who are his. Oh, I take many funerals of beloved Christian people and I know they belong and I can speak with absolute clarity about their faith and what it means to them. And of course, that's terrific. More often than not, because we're an Anglican church and you have to take funerals of people you've never seen in your life before, but they happen to be Anglicans and live around the corner. Uh, Do they believe? Do they not believe? You preach the gospel. I always try to do that. And I help myself by saying, well, the Lord knows those ways. I'm not the judge. I don't finally decide. I preach the gospel. I lead people to Christ as God gives grace. But at the end of the day, he knows those who are his. Ah, but if you're very clever and you've got a Bible with references, you will see that the Lord knows those who are his in verse 19. Is a quote from Numbers chapter 16 verse 5. And what's that story all about? About a man called Korah, who had a rebellion against Moses, and in his rebellion, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his friends and their families, and it says, the Lord knows those who are his, which implies he knows very much those who are not his. Great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great evangelical preacher of a bygone age, used to say, you don't just judge a man by what he says, but by what he doesn't say. 
And sadly, we live in a world where one of the things you must not say is there's a final judgment and that there's the awesomeness of hell. Well, the Bible does say it. And Jesus says it. And the certainty that you and I need is to know a faith that will assuredly last into eternity. Our hope is based on that certainty of faith. And the Lord knows those who are his and he knows those who are not his. And the other inscription, verse 19b, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. If we say we believe, we say we're his, then it's up to us to live the kind of life that proclaims it. And that means sometimes being separated from those whose ways are totally opposed. What the future will hold in the Anglican communion, and I say this reverently, God only knows. Things are moving, probably moving at a pace. But some separation is coming. I only ask you to note that if there is such a thing called schism, Americans call it schism, but we're English, and so it's schism, S-C-H-I-S-M. If there is a schism coming, who has caused the schism? Those of us who stand for what the Bible teaches and the Church of England has always believed? Or those who deny all that and because they go on denying it, we separate? Who's caused the schism? Who's rocked the boat? You're intelligent people, there's only one answer to that. And there comes a point when in order to demonstrate we must turn away from wickedness, that kind of separation happens. May I be allowed one prophetic word? And I will move quickly my other two points. We just produced an order service, you've seen it in the Church of England, which is for you can get married and have your children baptised on the same day you've been living together, so you have a, a service of marriage and baptism at the same time. And that seems sort of reasonable. It's accepting a, I'm not happy with it, but there's a kind of reasonableness about it. But do you know, do you know why it's happening? This is what I prophesy. Within two, three years, they'll produce a service for same-sex marriage. After all, that's already happening. They're living together. So it's a fact of life. We've got to accept it. We are now an inclusive church and we must. And if you are horrified, America, Canada, New Zealand, it's already there. It will come. This is the way in, you see. This is the gentle way in. And this is why, for many of us, the call to clarity will involve a call to purity, verses 20 and, 20 and 21. That is that we, are, we want to be vessels meet for the Master's use. We've sung about it, so I'll just leave it at that, that we want to be cleansed vessels, useful vessels, individually and as a church that we might be fit. Some of the older ones we remember used to sing a hymn off the Keswick Convention. Channels only, blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through me. Now I can see nobody sung it. Anyway, we used to sing it. Thou canst use me. Channels only. I always remember we, we used to send out a, a Keswick hymn sheet round to the local Keswick Conventions. And we had an awful misprint in one verse. Verse, it should have read that the streams of living water from my inner man may flow. They missed out the R. That the steams of living water from my inner man may flow. The whole picture of hot air escaping from all these people is amazing. But we all want to be or should want to be cleansed, useful vessels. But I finish on my last point. A call to clarity, a call to purity, a call to charity. If you, haven't, if you have read me wrong, I am sorry. 
I don't stand in this pulpit as a hate figure. I stand here as a love figure. I love the Church of England. I love the Gospel. With all my failings, I love my Lord. And it's for His name's sake and for the sake of the Church that I'm more than happy to speak on this gangrene which is spreading and remind you. It always needs to be with the right spirit. Just notice three quick things. An insistent work, 22 to 23. What do you think is the evil desires of youth? Well, don't tell me, just work it out. People tend to think sexual impurity. I don't think so, personally. I don't think sexual immorality is any more prevalent in young people than in older people. Not at all. No, I think the evil desires of youth are much more likely to go along with a kind of love of dispute, love of novelty, love of position, arrogance. And if you're not slightly arrogant as a youngster, there's something wrong somewhere. That's the kind of way we were. And so Paul says, please, just watch these things and try to be, by God's grace, a peacemaker. That's what we want. We want the church to be united in the gospel it's supposed to believe. This is what we're trying to do. So alongside, and we certainly don't have uh, stupid arguments that produce quarrels. Did you know that not too far away from here, there's a church that divided, and this is true, a church that divided over whether or not you should have a service on Christmas Day. Now, would you have thought that was the most important thing to divide Christendom about? I would have thought there were more, but I assure you, this church divided into two, uh, because one, thought, one lot thought you shouldn't have a special service on Christmas Day, the other lot thought, and they parted. Stupid arguments. And if a church will go on having stupid arguments, it deserves the fate of nobody listening to it. This insistent work is not having stupid arguments where seeking for peace. It's a consistent work, verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone. And again, that word kindness is misunderstood. That you're supposed to be kind if you always agree with everybody else. You think everybody is wonderfully right and proper and nice. Is that being kind? I don't expect my doctor to be kind. I expect him to be honest and loving, but not kind. That's not his job. Kindness is being willing to tell you the truth, but with care and love. So, yes, it is kindness. But it's kindness in the truth. And finally, a consistent work, an insistent work. And finally, in verses 25 and 26, an urgent work. What do we want about these false teachers? To get rid of them? Well, not ultimately. That may be the case. We would long for them to come back to the truth. To admit that they've been wrong. So we have to dialogue with them. Of course we do. We have to stand up and be willing to talk out with them. We gently instruct, please note the word gently, gently instruct them in the hope that God will bring them repentance. And in that last verse, the picture of them being saved from, it's a strange grammar, verse 26, but it seems to include the idea they've been intoxicated and they've been captivated and the devil, through his false teaching, has them in his grip. The devil is very clever. Read church history and churches are always destroyed from inside and not from outside. The Muslim hordes didn't get rid of the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. They died from within and they just buried them. 
And there are people who bury our churches very quickly. Big headlines in the newspaper this weekend about Europe and its expectation of being Islamic in huge number of percentage. Take it seriously. And the church will only come alive, not by just being negatively non-against Islam, but by becoming, putting our own house in order first. I finish with three scriptures very briefly. In the epistle of James, which we're expounding at Keswick, we didn't go to Keswick except for one day this year, for the first time in 30 years, we weren't at the convention, but they expounded James. How does the epistle of James end? Well, James 5, the last chapter, has a great deal about anointing with oil and a person sick. Uh, twice in my lifetime, I've had a service anointing, only twice, I've done it. One occasion, by the way, one of the older folk will remember Dirk Van Zylen, who led the navigator work here. He died just a week or two ago, you may not know. And Dirk is one of the people I anointed with oil because he had kidney trouble. Uh, he had transplant and he's lived a full life and only just gone to be with the Lord. But it doesn't end with the anointing with oil. It talks about if you're sick, then have the anointing with oil. Then it says this at the end of James. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The anointing with oil can save somebody who's, not, who's ill, and that's not unimportant. But they will die, eventually, of something. But here is a reminder of something that will save people eternally. I gather you had this message preached this morning. And it's a, the challenge of all evangelism must be high in our order because we're saving people from death. Now my other two scriptures that I just bring to you. In the 16th chapter of John, Jesus talks about the Spirit in two ways in the same chapter. He will lead the church into all truth and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. And the two go together. It's only when the church is convinced of the truth and is faithful to the truth that through the church he will convict of sin, righteousness and judgment. He's not going to do that through a compromised church. He's not going to do that with a church which has lost its own moorings. He'll do it when the church dares to stand up and be different. And in the prophet Ezekiel, I'm doing for my Bible, my quiet time Bible reading this year, the Anglican lectionary. There you are. I am Anglican at heart. And I'm reading the Anglican lectionary. And tomorrow morning I get to Ezekiel 37 in my Old Testament reading. And Ezekiel 37, dry bones. And God says to Elijah, can these bones live? And what was it? Ezekiel's answer? Perfect. It wasn't yes, it wasn't no, it simply was, oh Lord God, you know. Looking at this dry bones, no, it seems impossible, you're God, you're God. No, the church is not all dry bones, it's a joy to preach here tonight. It was a joy to preach this morning at Kendry, infinitely smaller congregation, but life giving, things moving. Yes, of course, there are, there are green shoots in the church life more than in the, in the recession of our country at the moment, I think. But there's a lot of dry bones about Can these dry bones live? Well, they can. But only if we inject genuine, spirit-led, biblical truth where the gangrene is beginning 
to spread. And that's why in a second or two, you're going to sing a hymn that I've chosen. You're allowed to choose the last hymn when you preach. We're going to sing a hymn which I sing with a, I sing with always with almost tears in my eyes. Just look at your last hymn and then I'll pray before we sing it. Look at verse, verse 3. This is where I get my tears in my eyes about the church I love. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the mourner's song. Sorry if I've preached longer than usual. You must forgive me. Uh, I was let loose. Let me just say a prayer.